It's a pleasure to join you for the rest of the afternoon. Thank you. My challenge, which is a pleasure, is to kind of wrap up and bring it all together. I mentioned earlier that the St. Benedict talked about we are to be reservoirs out of which comes our witness. And I believe that all day we've been full, filled. I'm hoping that my little addition doesn't cause you reflux. <laughs> but what I'd like to talk as practically as I can is to give you two things, two simple things, two aspects of my talk. The first will be what might be a simple way of looking at the science of conversion. How do we understand conversion? And I'm going to give you a very simple uh, way of looking at conversion that is something that I began using more than 30 years ago when I was a youth minister. And how do we look at the need for continual conversion? And this thing I'm going to give you is not only helpful, possibly, for others, but there isn't a person, I think, in this room that doesn't fit somewhere in this little presentation of the science of conversion. And then the second thing that I'm going to give you, and let's see if I can work this thing, is a, and we'll be using the, the things on the side so you don't have to look at me, uh, is a strategy for dialogue. This could be, have been entitled a strategy for evangelization, a strategy for apologetics. I use it, I call it the strategy for dialogue because my main work that God has placed in my heart now for over 20 years is how to help non-Catholic Christians discover the beauty of the church. What I'm going to talk about will apply for fallen away Catholics, well maybe even those that are not open to the faith, but I'm more considered about our Baptists, our Presbyterian, our Lutheran, our Assembly of God, our Pentecostal, Anglican friends and family members. Maybe they were Catholic and now they're on fire for Jesus in these other churches. How do we help them discover the beauty of the church? So that'll be strategy for dialogue. If I have any credentials at all, it's because the Lord in his mercy years ago opened my heart to him. And ever since my life was changed in my 20s, my one desire has been, how can I help others have a similar conversion to Jesus Christ? And these three verses, for example, have been very important to me. The one you're so familiar with, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in me should not perish but have eternal life. You've seen that at football games. But the significance is simply whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him shall not perish. John 14, God said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me, but by me. And then lastly, John 15, just one little segment there. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Believing in him, through him, with him, the power of him. That's why we're here. That's why we're here. What about those you can think of in your life who don't know Christ? What's going to happen to them? Where are they in their journey? And what can we do? in our witness, not to judge, but to make sure they discover the beauty of Jesus Christ. 
Let's see here. I think that's, is that the one I wanted? You know, how did the apostles ever do it without this stuff, you know? Oh, yeah, there's the one I want. I want that little picture there. Some of you know that I went to seminary with Scott Hahn, so most of you might think this is an old drawing of Scott when he was in seminary. But uh, actually, no, because his hair was much longer then. This is actually a picture of Kierkegaard. And Kierkegaard I've always liked. I'm not a philosopher, but there was something about Kierkegaard that I had heard that always inspired me, that the foundation for much of what he wrote was because he would sit in coffee shops and watch people. And he told in a book that was published after his death that the main reason he always wrote, he wrote as a Christian, and his desire was to change lives. And so when you look at people and you think, how does that person know Christ? How do I reach that person? And you sit in coffee shops, you see lots of different kinds of people. And you wonder, I wonder if they know. And you look at the way they live or the way they dress. How do you reach those people? And that has been for me, not just the academic and the scholarly, but how does this make a difference in the local coffee shop? How you reach that person, or maybe the person in your life who wants nothing to do with the faith. And as Scott mentioned earlier in his talk, the Pew study, this I just got in an email yesterday morning. What this demonstrates is that the Catholic Church has gone down in size has gone down 3% of our population. Mainline Protestantism has dropped 3%. Non-Christian faiths has increased by 1%. And evangelicalism has dropped almost 1%. But the unaffiliated has increased almost 7%. The atheist, the agnostic. We've got work to do, and as he also mentioned, just because a person says they're Catholic doesn't mean they're on fire for Jesus Christ. I talked to a bishop recently, and he said, well, if 20% of our population say they're Catholic, he'd say about a third of those actually are practicing the sacraments, which means, okay, let's say half. That means for every 10 people that die, nine of them die apart from the sacraments. Does it make a difference? We have a lot of work to do. We have a lot of work to do. And this is the verse that always comes to mind when I look around at people in our world. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? Look at people we know on TV. Not on my show, of course, but if you look around at TV, <laughs> look what's important to their lives. Look what they've dedicated their lives for. Look what they've filled their lives with and what they're handing on to their children. All of that stuff. What does it profit a man if you gain all of that and in the process you lose your soul? How do we help those in our lives? The first half of the show, show, excuse me, I happened to see recently a replay of when my wife was on the program, and I well started. I was nervous. My wife, the first time on the program, and I began the program. Welcome. I'm the guest for the Journey Home program. <laughs> I, you, you get in a, a flow, you know, and 
I want to talk about, this is a way of, of expressing the science of conversion in kind of a fun way, especially with young people. And that is the question, what is the punctuation of your faith? This idea came about 30-some years ago when I was a young pastor, and I read this scripture text. When Paul writes, therefore I want you to understand that no one speaking by the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus be cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now you tell me, do I have the Holy Spirit or not? Because I just said both. So what does he mean? Well, that's why the translators, if you notice, put the exclamation point by Jesus be cursed. It isn't in the Greek. They're trying to express that it isn't the mere words. It's what's conveyed, the conviction of the way you say something. And the way you convey that with a set of words is with your punctuation marks. Jesus is Lord. That simple phrase can mean a variety of things depending on what punctuation mark you put at the end, right? Question mark, exclamation point. Same words, different thing. I'll give you kind of a funny example. You can use a lot of different examples to illustrate this. But for example, Pat Madrid loves chickens. You may not have known that Pat Madrid loves chickens. In fact, he has quite a chicken condominium in his backyard. In fact, his last batch of chickens came from us. You didn't know he had chickens? You didn't know he liked chickens? What does it mean that Pat Madrid loves chickens? But if you put instead a, a comma at the end of that sentence, that means Pat loves chickens and wine and apologetics and food and soccer and food and his family and food. <laughs> In other words, comma means that it's one of many things. Pat loves chickens, but that's just one of many things. Or you could move to a period, meaning that you've realized that Pat loves chickens, period. It's serious. He seems to love chickens more than anything else. And now you want to, wait a second, this can't be true. This doesn't sound like Pat Madrid. I'm seeing him up there. Yeah, there he is up there. He's doing the chicken dance up there even. So you do some study. Pat loves chicken, colon. And when you put a colon, that means now you go on to explain everything you've just said. And you start to discover that he has this huge condominium in his backyard, that he has chickens, even when no one else in his family even wants to eat chickens or eggs anymore, he still has chickens. You come over to his house one night and he's sitting in the living room in a chicken outfit. And that's when you discover that Pat loves chickens, exclamation point. Be careful, Pat loves chickens. That's humorous only partially true. But if I put it this way, Pat loves Christ. And of course we know that, and he does. And when seen in that way, the punctuation marks, think about it, in a way represent the process of conversion. From question mark, you don't know that Pat loved Christ. Pat didn't know Christ, even born a Catholic. He had to come to know, and at some point he just, oops, Oh, no, I'm jumping ahead of myself. At some point, as he grows, Christ is one of many things in his life. Maybe not the most important, but one of many things. 
He's growing in his understanding of his faith. And then when he's confirmed, Pat loves Christ. He makes a conviction, a statement, a proclamation to the world. And then, because of as what Pat talked about, he discovered more about his faith, became serious, so he took time to discover his faith. Colon meant he's learning. He can define, defend, tell his faith. Until exclamation point, you have Pat standing in front of a bunch of people defending the church, defending the church's pro-life stance, even to the point of being embarrassed in front of 1,600 people defending the church, all the, who are trying to, uh, hoping he fails in his argument. You see how that represents a journey. It represents the, the continual journey in understanding our faith. That's true with Jesus as Lord. You don't know who Jesus is, what's it mean that he's Lord? Many of us got to a point in our life where he was just one of many things, not the most important. Maybe then we grew to a point of saying, yes, he is Lord of my life. But we may not be able to explain what that means. Then we grow to the point of reading and studying and prayer and, and then finding ourselves changed by grace until we're challenged, exclamation point, to make a stand, a difference. That's the journey. And this, these are words from a book by Father Garagou Lagrange that have always stuck with me, in which he says, in the ways of God, he who makes no progress loses ground. Have you heard this quote before? I encourage you to write it down and think about it. In the ways of God, he who makes no progress loses ground. Not a one of us in this room, except maybe the cardinal here, arises to a level at which we can say, I've arrived. And the cardinal, you know, your eminence, I'm joking. Every one of us must keep progressing spiritually. Because the moment we think we've arrived, we start drifting backwards. We start drifting backwards. The reason this quote was so important to me in my own journey was because as a Protestant that taught, once saved, always saved, I believed that once you got to the period place on the journey in that punctuation mark, you'd arrived. You're saved. You don't need to even grow anymore. And then when I hear, heard good Catholic theology and met Catholics who witnessed to me, I discovered, no, the rest of our life is growing closer to Jesus Christ. The rest of our life is learning what it means that Jesus is Lord. The journey is forward and back, forward and back, maybe over a year, over a month, over a week, maybe an hour. Have any of you in this room gone into confession and come out, done your penance, then five, five minutes later you realize, oh, I better go back in again? T.C. Eliot said, in the way, he said, the way up and the way down are one and the same. The way up and the way down are one and the same. It's a journey, up and down, and it's always, Lord, have mercy. Give me the grace. Give me the understanding and the strength to act on that so that I can grow closer to you and so that I can help others do the same. My own journey... I came as I was growing closer to the Catholic Church, I realized that there's more than really just being in Jesus. Christ calls us to abide. The necessity to abide is continual, remain the rest of our lives. This isn't a one-time thing. Just because you were baptized, confirmed, 
the rest of our lives. It's, we're called to abide because he said very clearly that if we don't abide in him, we're like the dead branches on a tree that get thrown away, the fruitless branches. I, I'm embarrassed to say that I, I have on the inside of my wedding band a verse inscribed. Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit. Our love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. You know, I would, I would be living those out, except that I can't get my ring out to read it anymore. <laughs> but that's the fruit of the Spirit. That's the fruit of abiding. And if we're not abiding, we don't produce the fruit. And we might as well be thrown out. Are we growing in love, joy, peace? Patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Lord, help us. We have growing, I do, have growing to do. It's called holiness. And that verse in Hebrews I never saw before, when I was a non-Catholic, strive for peace with all men and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Hebrews 12, 14. For the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Our call to grow in holiness, our need to continue growing closer to Christ every day, every day, and we're empowered to do that by the sacraments. You know, something I didn't know, and, and I, some of the scholars who've spoken could speak more on this, but I, never, I always thought that Intimacy with Jesus is that he just comes into your heart, you know, when you accept him, he's there in your heart, he's with you no matter where you are, and that's true. But you know that all the spiritual writers of the church, at least before the Reformation, and they have since, but more clearly, especially with someone like St. Hilary, that emphasized the way you abide in Christ is through receiving him in the Eucharist. That's how we abide. In fact, there's only one place in Scripture, where Jesus says how you abide, it's by eating his body and blood. In John 6, if you eat my body and drink my blood, you will abide in me and I in you. Our need to grow in holiness. Question mark, do we know what holiness is? Comma, is holiness just another thing? All those, all those other lists of things we've got to do. Period, do we realize holiness is serious? Colon, are we growing to understand what holiness means? Are we listening to the teachings of the church and spiritual writers, reading good books like Dr. Tim's book on, on the sacred heart of Jesus? Do we understand what it means that our heart is changed to be like our Lord? So that exclamation point, we, the point we can take a stand in our culture for what it means to be holy, even if in the process we are ridiculed. Christendom College. Christendom College is to restore all things to Christ. We've got students that come to this school that, question mark, maybe don't know Jesus Christ, don't know the church, maybe in name only, but maybe down deep they really don't know. And maybe the process is in that while they're here, at least Christ and the church become one of the important things in their life, comma, but the goal of this whole university, as witnessed by the president, is to bring them all along the journey. So he's not just one of many things, but that Christ and his church are an exclamation point in their lives. Do you understand? That's what Christendom College is about. 
an exclamation point about Jesus Christ and his church. What a great place this is. Thank you all for supporting it. But where are you? Where are you? Where are you with Christ and his church? That was the issue for me when I was drawn to the Catholic Church. I didn't even, there's two issues I want to point out here when I get to the next section, which I'm almost there. And uh, is that I've found in, I've been a Catholic now for 22 years. My wife and I came in together, praise God. Um, I've had this wonderful privilege of the Journey Home program. Uh, I do Coming Home Network, which is a, an apostolate that helps non-Catholic uh, Christians, clergy, and laity discover the beauty of the church and come home to the church. We particularly help Protestant ministers. Just what are they going to do when they become Catholic? And we've helped over 2,000 clergy in the last 20 years from over 100 different denominations. About half of those are in the church. The other half are still trying to decide whether God's calling them home. Every week we hear from two to five brand new Protestant ministers. And they're not coming there because of us. They're coming there because of the witness of our Holy Father and the church and all kinds of other ways. And they come to us to figure out, oh, no, now what do we do? But there's two main issues that I believe stand in the way of our separated brethren from coming home to the church. And as we think about a strategy for reaching out to them, these two things loom very large for me. They were true in my own life, but they loom particularly large. And these are two things. Number one. Do you realize, and maybe you do, that most of our non-Catholic Christian brothers and sisters do not believe that we Catholics are Christians? They just don't think so. For many of them, it's a subliminal belief, but it's a part of our American culture. There's a long history to this. Came here from England. It was very much a part of the Puritans. You know that in, in New England, from the landing of the Pilgrim Fathers in about 1920 until the end of the American Revolution in the 1760s, 1770s, 1780s. There were no Catholic priests in all of New England. Not one. Because all the penal laws were enforced in New England as well as Maryland. And so some of the most anti-Catholic teachings that came out of New England that were a part of the catechisms that were used to train Puritan young boys and girls that had anti-Catholic poetry in them by the likes of pastors like Cotton Mather had never in their entire lives met a Catholic. Never seen a mass. Never smelt the smells and heard the bells. But they were anti-Catholic to the core. and Most of it was driven out of fear. And what had been passed along generation to generation and are still a part of our non-Catholic Christian brothers and sisters in America. If you don't believe it, just find out when one of your Catholic members decides to marry a non-Catholic Christian. And pretty soon you'll hear some of those other families looking at you askance and even wondering whether they want to attend the marriage or not. They don't think the Catholic Church is a Christian church because of stuff that's been mentioned earlier by Pat, for example. We worship statues and we worship Mary and in the Catholic Church killed 16 million people during the, uh, you know, it's crazy. Uh, they don't understand, they don't know, it's a big question mark. The second issue, besides the fact they don't think the church and that we Catholics are Christian, the second issue is that most non-Catholic Christians 
do not believe that a church is necessary for salvation anyway. As long as you have Jesus, as long as you believe in him, surrender to him, given your life to Jesus Christ, live by the scriptures, it really doesn't matter whether you're a Baptist or a Presbyterian or Anglican. You can't be a Catholic, but all these other things, it really doesn't. In other words, when we get to heaven, we stand before Jesus, and he asks you, why should I let you into the kingdom? Is it going to matter whether you're a Baptist or a Presbyterian or a Methodist or a Lutheran? And to most non-Catholic Christians, it, it, it's an appalling idea that it would even matter. It's an absurd idea, and this comes all the way back from Luther and Calvin. And we're going to get to this in a moment because if you do all your apologetics with a person and you help them understand that Catholic, good Catholics are Christians and that the Catholic Church is a Christian church and they understand that Catholic doctrines are at least Christ-centered, they can understand all of that. But they still may not hear the mandate to become Catholic because what difference does it make? As long as I have Jesus, why do I need the Catholic Church? And that is a, a subliminal conviction with many of our non-Catholic Christians. And it was something that I had to go through in my own journey with the punctuation of the faith to the point where at least when I got to the comma stage, I recognized that at least the Catholic Church, okay, all right, I understand the doctrines and at least it is a Christian church. And G.K. Chesterton in his wonderful book, The Church and Conversion, says once you get a person to that stage, they're on they're in trouble. They will eventually come home. But, but those punctuation marks represent, you know, at least accepting the church and then studying the church and then having the conviction, exclamation point, to come home, even if it meant giving up an apostle. I remember sitting in my basement weeping when I was going to leave the Protestant ministry to become Catholic, and I, I was literally weeping that I would never have a pulpit again. It's amazing. Any one Journey Home episode, I reach more people than I would have my entire life as a Protestant minister. God is wonderful. Oh, no. It's him. It's our good Lord, you know that. All right, that's kind of a, a scientific way of looking at the conversion, using these funny punctuation marks to represent that our faith in Christ deepens what is the punctuation mark of our faith? When people look at us, what do they hear? And so here's a strategy for dialogue. Now this little thing I'm going to give you here could be easily be an hour-long presentation, but I'm going to do it very quickly because all the fill-in has been presented today. Everything I could say in these 10 steps has been said today. And this is a strategy to take all that you've learned today and then when you leave here, to think about one person in your life that you, who doesn't know the church, is not active in the church, what can you do? I'm not saying this is a silver bullet. I'm not saying it works all the time. I will say, given my 18 years of journey home interviews, people have asked me to write a book, take all those interviews and kind of, you know, give us the silver bullet, and everybody's a little different. But I've narrowed it down to this process of 10 steps that might work all right so if i had a phd i could say it does work but i don't have a phd so <laughs> it might work let's see here now 
Oh boy, we have time for this. Yeah, I, th I think we do. This is, some will ask, is it still necessary for us to reach out to our non-Catholic Christian brothers and sisters? Over the years, I can't tell you how many times we've been approached by non-Catholic Christians who have said that they've been told by the local diocese that ever since Vatican II, it's not necessary to convert. So is it necessary? Can't we just say, well, we know those good Baptists, you know, they seem to love Jesus more than many Catholics I know. They're, they're just fine. Leave them alone. This is what Avery Dulles said. It takes three slides because I want you to be able to see it. But he helps define the work that I do. He said, the cultural atmosphere of our world inclines us to say that all churches and ecclesial communities, no matter what their tenets may be, are equally legitimate. The Church of Christ, according to this view, has been fragmented into a multitude of denominations, no one of which can claim to have the fullness of Christianity. Even Catholics frequently speak as though it makes no difference whether a person be Protestant, Catholic, or Orthodox. They sometimes speak as though a multiplicity of mutually complementary churches were the will of Christ himself. Have you heard that or seen that? All right. Paragraph 2. The Catholic Church has never accepted this outlook. It has insisted and continues to insist that the Church of Christ subsists in its fullness in the Roman Catholic Communion and nowhere else. The Catholic Church and she alone is equipped with the fullness of the means of salvation. All the blessings of the new covenant have been entrusted to her alone. And whatever elements of the true church survive and other communions derive from the Catholic fullness and belong by right to the Catholic Church. These points, clearly stated by the Second Vatican Council, were reaffirmed by the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith in its declaration, Dominus Jesu. Finally, the work of reconciling dissident Christians to the Catholic Church should be seen as continuous with primary evangelization, which consists in the proclamation of the basic Christian message. Catholics should have the courage to declare with Vatican II that their church has been made necessary by God and that anyone who is in a position to see this has an obligation to become fully incorporated into her. Until people have accepted the fullness of Christian revelation as proclaimed by the Catholic Church, their evangelization is not yet complete. We've got a lot to do, friends, and we have a treasure to share. Remember the Old Testament watchman? What was his responsibility? To tell the community if they're in danger. If he didn't tell them, what happened? Whose fault was it? His. If he told them and they ignored, he'd done his job. Evangelization is our job to tell. If we don't tell, mea culpa. Mea culpa. All right. Three preliminary questions. And I'm watching the clock, but you let me know. Before we get into the four steps, there's three things you've just got to remember. One, are the evangelizers evangelized? That's us. We want to evangelize our neighbors, but are we evangelized? Do we know Jesus Christ? Where are we at in our punctuation? Are we growing every day? Have we surrendered? Number two, what is our strategy? 
to evangelize, what are we going to do? And that's the little thing I'm going to give you here as a strategy. But number three, what will the evangelized find when we bring them home to our parish, to our community? What will they find? Or is that always that, that tension between evangelization and renewal? Both have to happen. And John Paul makes this wonderful statement. Certainly, every convert is a gift to the church and represents a serious responsibility for her. Especially in the case of adults, such converts bring with them a kind of new energy, an enthusiasm for the faith, and a desire to see the gospel lived out in the church. They would be greatly disappointed if, having entered the ecclesial community, they were to find a life lacking fervor. And without signs of renewal, we cannot preach conversion unless we ourselves are converted anew every day. If we're going to reach out with a strategy and we're looking forward to give, you know, when, when we're emptying the reservoir that we have, we've got to keep filling that reservoir through prayer, through devotion, through the sacraments, so that we have something to give. All right. I think the next step. Okay. Here are the four quick steps. They may seem so absolutely obvious, but I believe they are the strategy. Number one, number one, be a friend. Be a friend. I don't know for sure whether Leo XIII really had that vision or not. I love his prayer. But I often think when the devil got back with the strategy of how to destroy the church, and he got with his committees, and they made a list of what they were going to do, it seems to me that one of the first things they were going to destroy in the 20th century was friendship. In our culture, every single relationship is suspect. Man to man, man to woman, woman to woman, adult to child. I mean, you've gotten worse now. You don't even know if they're a man or a woman. All to destroy the channels of communication for Jesus Christ. So the most important thing we can do to fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil is be a friend. Be a friend in Christ. Too many Catholics don't know non-Catholic Christians. And that's one of the biggest problems. We'll get to that in a second. Be a friend. Number two, pray. That, that sounds so redundant. Of course, prayer. But I mean pray. Of all the years I've done Journey Home Program, I can tell you, every single conversion with all the apologetics and all the issues, everything was done, happened by grace. And so when you think of that one person in your life that you need to be a better friend to because you want to help them discover Christ in his church, every single day, hold that person before the Father. Pray for your ability to share, your ability by grace to grow in holiness, opportunities to share your faith, but number three, for grace to open the hearts and minds of that person. And like St. Monica, don't you give up. Don't you give up. Don't get discouraged. Friendship and prayer forever. Even if they hate you, friendship and prayer. Be a friend. Oh, they don't like me. Who cares? Like them. <laughs> friendship and prayer. Thirdly, in your friendship, your goal is to help them see that a faithful Catholic is a faithful Christian. How are they going to discover that? Through you through your words, through your actions. And you might, if you want to get apologetic, 
is to sit down after you've had a good friendship and you've been praying, and after a while you say to them, why do you consider yourself a Christian? And when they throw back their statements, you can then say, well, I agree. Those are the same things that are important to me. Again, if we had more time, we'd go through all of these. But this is what we talked about all day. Be a friend. Pray for that person. Help them see in you that a... Oh, boy, if I have more time. I've got to say this. I'll get it done. When I, I resigned from a pastorate, when I, did, I wasn't interested in the Catholic Church, but I resigned from the pastorate when I saw the confusion of Protestantism and I realized I couldn't be in the pulpit anymore because I couldn't be certain that I knew what was true. And I got accepted at uh, Case Western Reserve in a PhD program in molecular biology. I was going to combine my science and religious background into genetic ethics. So I was studying genetic ethics. And so in 1990, I'm in a lab with three other men in the opening days of the Genome Project. And we're doing all kinds of stuff in genetic engineering to determine where the thyroid hormone is in the human DNA. I worked with these men for six months every day in the lab. I talked about being a Christian, about being a former pastor and all this stuff, and you'd realize that I didn't know that all three of them were Catholics until they came back one Wednesday with gray on their foreheads. <laughs> Lord Jesus, that has to be more than our sign of being a Catholic. I didn't know they were Catholic Christians. When my mother heard we were becoming Catholic, she said, but that's the church of the drinkers and the smokers and the gamblers. And I said, well, yeah. <laughs> what do our lives tell our closest friends? Do they understand? Paul talked about being sensitive to the weaker brother. Help them see that we are Christians. Number four, in the process, then help them discover that the Catholic Church is a Christian church. They may want to keep going. What about those doctrines? Say, just wait a second. But the Catholic Church is about Jesus Christ. And you could start that discussion by asking them, why, do you, why is your church Christian? Ask that to a Presbyterian nowadays, and he might say, well, I'm not so sure anymore. But challenge them and then show them through the catechism that our church is all about Jesus Christ. Step five, that Catholic doctrines and devotions are all Christ-centered. Even the Marian devotions are about Jesus. They're about Jesus. Our Protestant brothers don't know that. But if you're a friend and they see you're a Christian, they discover the church is a Christian church and that her teachings are Christian, you've just established a foundation to now start doing some apologetics. You've earned the right to be heard. So that step six, get into this discussion about sacred scripture was never intended to be alone. Now you're starting to get in some good discussion. And you've developed a relationship so you can have that. A, a, in fact, you might ask them something like, well, where in Scripture does it teach Scripture alone? Of course, you've got to do your homework. You've got to do your homework. Step seven, you can move to the, show them that in Scripture that Jesus established the church as the community of salvation. Jesus didn't teach individualism, me and Jesus. He talked about community. And there's plenty of resources in the catechism to help you discover that. Then you move to step eight, that this church with Christ established subsists in the Catholic Church. Again, this is a process, a process. You've built a friendship. You've moved them from a question mark to at least comma, and now you're trying to get them to the period stage 
to the point where maybe by grace they're looking into the colon stage. They're starting to study for themselves because if they can, you get them to see that the, the fullness of the church subsists in the Catholic Church, you've gotten them to step 9 and 10, which is where we want them to get. We want them to recognize that, number 9, the sacraments are the normal means of grace and that the Eucharist is the normal means of abiding in Christ. This is a strategy of moving forward with a friend that maybe by grace the Holy Spirit can open their heart. This is just a John 6 passage. I know it's time to bring to a close. I just want to end with one last slide then. Okay, there's a strategy. Is it workable? Can anyone see that workable with a friend? It takes time. For me, you know what the hardest step of those are? Number one, <laughs> being a good friend. Lord, help me. Lord, help me. Help me be a better friend. Prayer. How many times people have said to you, my uncle's sick, please pray for him. And you say, I'll do that, and then you never do. Is it just me that screws up that way? Prayer is so significant. The devil does everything he can to keep us from prayer. All those steps are important, but I want to end with one slide. This. Where are you? I can guarantee that every single person in this room can grow one step along this journey to make sure that we might say a lot about our faith, but how many of us treat Jesus and the church like it's just one of many things in our life? Is Jesus and the church the most important? Do you know your faith well enough to share it? And do you know it and have convicted, convicted enough to take a stand, even if it means ridicule, persecution? And do you think we're going to be facing that soon? In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, help us. Help us to be witnesses of Jesus Christ. Give us the strength. Give us the grace. Give us the community. Because together, by your grace, we can defend you. This is our call. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you.